on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, however you're listening, it's America's talk radio show about opera. It's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, and Weston Williams. All right, this week, we go inside the huddle with Catherine Henry, the soprano who went from standby to stardom in the world premiere of The Lord of Cries at the Santa Fe Opera. Oliver talks to the 28-year-old singer who in the last month was signed by IMG Artist, was named to the Ryan Opera Center, and plays second in the Dallas Opera competition. Then... We finally saw the Barry Kosky Magic Flute, and that means the return of Monday evening quarterback. Plus, two-minute drill, Alina Garancha has announced that she has not grown horns or wings. Plus, we get to the bottom of why exactly opera singers don't deafen each other on stage. Have you always wanted to know that? I will tell you why. Hey, for watching on TDO... You want to make sure you subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. You can even just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. It's great to have the team back together. Oliver Camacho, how's life? Fascinating. Excellent. <laughs> I love that one word answer, Matt Cummings. I'm good. I'm just here with my flickering light, which was not a Halloween special, as way, you may have thought. <laughs> great great description for the many. podcast. Thank you. Way, way too many words. Weston Williams. What's new? Uh, I would say life is poignant. Also too many words. Oliver <laughs> wins. Bears and Steelers playing uh, as we're taping the show. Monday Night Football Steelers up 7 nothing. Matt Cummings and I, if we could punch each other through our screens, we just might do that. The it's true. Person... I did Google bad blood earlier to see if I could get any updates on this game. <laughs> Good for you. It's, you know, Ashley's not on the show tonight. I think she's in transit somewhere, but... Aaron Rodgers. You know what? I'm just going to shut up and I'm going to let Ashley speak for herself. Frederick Douglass, Ida B. Wells, Fannie Lou Hamer, John Lewis, and now standing on their shoulders, the greatest freedom fighter, Green Bay Packers quarterback, Karen Rodgers. Yes, Miss Karen quoted equally as important to the resistance as him, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., as he described himself on a podcast this week as not some sort of anti-vax flat earther, but rather a critical thinker. And if you read the subtext, affluent Caucasian American to whom rules are meaningless. After getting caught with his vax down when his alleged immunization against COVID did nothing when he got COVID, Karen Rogers took to the Pulitzer Prize winning media outlet, the Pat McAfee podcast, as he referenced the woke mob and a witch hunt against those who are unvaccinated. And he offered his opinion on a variety of issues related to the pandemic and personal health, and apparently his fear of sterility from Johnson and Johnson themselves. But Karen... He's special, y'all. That $134 million man is a step ahead of us all. He's got a secret weapon, none other than noted Harvard medical scholar Joe Rogan to provide him with sound medical advice and cutting-edge technologies like horse dewormer, which was helpful in emphasizing the acute case of audacity in Wisconsin's beloved quarterback. But it's not just that Aaron Rodgers is smarter and whiter and richer than us all, with cooler, more educated friends like published New England Journal of Medicine author Dr. Joe Rogan. He's played this even closer to the chest, 
in a failed effort to not face the exact public scrutiny he's getting now. You see, not only did he lie about his status, he ignored all of the protocols the NFL set out months ago for players without shots. Unvaccinated players are required to wear face masks at all times while in the team facilities to observe social distancing. They can't eat meals with teammates, no media or marketing opportunities when traveling. They also aren't allowed to use the sauna or the steam room in team facilities, and they're not allowed to leave the team hotel for any outside interactions with anybody, excuse me, not affiliated with their respective team. They can't have lockers near their teammates or travel with them to games. When they get to the game, they need to show a negative COVID test in order to rejoin the team. They're restricted from attending indoor events such as bars, nightclubs, concerts, and other events with more than 15 people where masks are not being worn. But when you're an aging star with maybe one more good season and a 7-1 and record, none of this matters. Bring that wet mouth into the stadiums and press conferences across America, unleashed. But it's not just that Karen lied to all of us, putting thousands of lives at risks. He lied so as to dodge the scrutiny he's rightfully facing right now. He didn't want to be a pariah for being vocal about his Vax opposition. Like Rhodes biomedical scholar and benched Brooklyn Nets point guard Kyrie Irving. He wanted to and got to fly under the radar, making millions while violating safety protocols. And he had the support, or at very least, the looking away of his team, his coaches, and his front office. Why not hold up a little public health lunacy from your team leader when the NFC North is at stake? And so our freedom fighter faces an investigation from the league if found to be in violation. I will save you time. He's in violation. If he is, he's subject to the punitive plan that was set out months ago. But I say... Skip over that first-time offender fine of $14,650. Skip the repeat offender suspension. He wants to play God, so let's give him a hell of a sentence. Void all seven wins, knocking the Packers out of playoff contention. Find all of the positive COVID cases of the opposing teams that he's played so far. The Texans, the Jets, the Bills, the Saints, the Lions, the 49ers, the Steelers, the Bengals, the Bears, the Washington football team, and the Cardinals. And he is responsible for the medical costs of any COVID case of any employee with a salary under hundred grand. This man on a podcast where he doubled down about his choice to endanger thousands quoted Dr. King or at least tried to, and lauded the peer-reviewed research of internationally recognized infectious disease expert Joe Rogan, all while wearing a t-shirt emblazoned with Doc Holliday. Who's going to tell Karen that Doc Holliday died of tuberculosis, another airborne lung infection that was largely eradicated with vaccines? What Rogers has done is dangerous and irresponsible. What the Packers have done in covering for him is even more so. So it's up to Roger Goodell and the NFL to enforce penalties and save lives. And we are watching. And so the Freedom Fighter turned Pansy Punk Award this week goes to Karen Rogers. At least Kyrie Irving had the pigskins to be public about his denial of science. Yes, Aaron Rodgers causing problems. Is, you know what? You cannot trust the Packers. You cannot trust those people from <laughs> Wisconsin. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Wow, you had to bring up Wisconsin. Um, and our guest today 
is from Wisconsin. So thanks a lot for um, you can't making... trust anyone from Wisconsin <laughs> except our guest. <laughs> now all of the Wisconsin people are going to be hostile towards us. <laughs> So I wanted to interview uh, Catherine Henry because I think where she is in her career right now is where a lot of young singers can imagine themselves being. Now, obviously, you need to have the talent and have worked as hard and to have the right things happen for you to be where she is. But it seems like for those of us who have dreamed about having an opera career, this is where we can dream of. This is like a realistic you know, dream to have. So Katie um, was a, an apprentice at Santa Fe and, you know, many people make it to that level. Uh, she was understudying the lead role of Lucy Harlow, I forget the name, uh, in Lord of Cries, uh, which was the world premiere opera by John Corleone and Mark Adamo. And she just went to rehearsals and we'll hear her tell the story. And uh, Susanna Phillips, who was supposed to sing the role, withdrew from the production and she was put into the run, the full run. Uh, in the same year, she um, made it into the Ryan Opera Center just last month, and she was signed by, you know, IMG artists. So all of these things that we all want to happen for our singing careers mm. happened to her just within the past few months. And then yeah. she got to be on the show, like the cherry on right. the top. So I think it's just really informative to see, like, when we did this with Emily, Emily Pogoreltz, uh, was also in a very similar place in her career. Uh, and I just think it's just informative, especially for you know young singers listening to hear what it's actually like to be going through these things. So without further ado, we will get to this interview, but first we'll listen to a little bit of Katie singing, Ain't It a Pretty Night. Just think those stars can all peep down and see we beyond where we can. They can see we beyond the mountains Nashville and Asheville and Knoxville. Oh, wonder what it's like up there, up there beyond the mountains, where the folks talk nice and the folks dress nice, like a see in the mail on a catalog. So that was my guest, Catherine Henry, with pianist Jonathan Gaminder in just a little bit of Carlisle Floyd's Ain't It a Pretty Night. Catherine, should we call you Katie or do you prefer, I don't know what the deal is with your... Either one's fine. Okay. Catherine and Katie, I go by both. I'll respond okay. to both of them. <laughs> okay. Well, Catherine, also known as Katie, welcome to Opera Box Score. Yes. I'm so excited to be here and to talk to you today, Oliver. So I first heard you sing... Um, in Santa Fe, and I have a, we have a mutual friend who wanted me to hear you give your first audition for Ryan Opera Center. I guess it was like three years ago at this point. Yeah, um, I think so. Crazy. And time. I missed it. It was one of those things where you know those auditions are literally all day long, like six hours of auditions, and mm -hmm. I missed the Sopranos that day. So I saw your name and I saw the rep that you had offered, but I didn't actually hear it. So I was like, oh well, next time, you know. Yeah. Uh, so, so the first time I actually heard you sing was on the stage of Santa Fe Opera in this ridiculous role 
that was a world premiere, Lord of Cries. I forget the character's name. I'm sorry. What's her Lucy. name? Lucy. Lucy Harker. <laughs> <laughs> and the role of Lucy Harker in John Corleano's um, Lord of Cries and Mark Adamo's Lord of Cries. Um, yes. And this role is bonkers. Uh, it is, the tessitura is punishingly high. It's super dramatic. You're on stage with Jared Ott and Anthony Roth Costanzo. Like, how is that for like a you know your first time like on the main stage of Santa Fe? And then uh, shortly afterwards, you were well. I I should say just a couple of weeks ago, you were inducted into uh, the Ryan Opera Center here in Chicago. You're going to be in the upcoming class. And then just like last week, you placed second in the Dallas Opera uh, competition. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm sure I'm missing some other things that have happened to you this year, but it feels like, okay, it's becoming Katie Henry's world this year. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I'm really excited. I'm so grateful for everything that's happening. I can't complain. It's definitely busy, which, again, I'm thankful and grateful for. (laughs) Did I miss something leading up to Santa Fe? I mean, being an apprentice at Santa Fe in and of itself is like, yes. So I'm getting like the blessing from, you know, the powers that be that like I should be having a career, you know. But Yeah. Uh, I mean, was- there, was, there wasn't much before Santa Fe. I, I would say that. I mean, COVID year happened, right? So yeah. it was a lot of me um, just going and practicing every night or either whether it be singing or going through text or learning different roles and stuff like that. I also discovered a lot of vocal things uh, that year where I didn't expect that I would have an upper extension and I kind of had fun playing with that and seeing what it was like. Um, So yeah, I just didn't have much going on before Santa Fe. It was more of just my own work. So you are a graduate of University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. Yes. And then you went to Juilliard for a which degree is it? A for, master's? Uh, yeah, my master's. Yep. Okay. And then you sort of just were on the back burner for a couple of years. And is it my understanding you have a teacher in Chicago now or an additional teacher in Chicago? Uh, I have Julia Faulkner in Chicago, but I also have my teacher in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, uh, Connie Haas. She's the Yoda of teaching in my opinion. She's amazing. <laughs> awesome. We love Yodas. Uh, <laughs> And so, I mean, for those who haven't heard you sing and who are going to hear you sing very soon, I mean, I would describe the voice as um, right, right now, it's, it feels lyric coloratura, but it also has some steel in it. So we see the potential for you to maybe be dramatic coloratura. Is that fair to say? I don't know. I'm just <laughs> going with the flow, man. And yeah. being comfortable with what I'm singing right now is the most important thing to me. Um, because that's what I can market myself as. Yeah. Uh, but who knows? Voices change so much and you can't determine exactly where it's going to land. Um, I expect that I'll probably do some dramatic color tour things. E yeah. flat below, not necessarily yeah. E flat. But um, yeah, I think that's kind of a good guess. But So like, so like said, if, if you were to be fucked today, <laughs> um, somebody would say, okay, um, Fiora Ligi um, yes. or um, yep. Luc- Lucia. Lucia Lamore or something like that, you know? Yeah, maybe Lucia. I don't know. That one scares me. <laughs> but that's just because I'm so used to lyrical rep that Lucia just kind of seems like a little bit of a reach. Just the testator, I think, is more what yeah. scares me. But who knows? The future- but, your, but your calling card, Aria, is uh, the con- 
conclusion of Anna Bolena. It's like 12 minutes. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, it, speaking of like Dallas, the competition, it was very funny to be in that concert because the rest of the finalists, all of their arias were like six, seven minutes, a comfortable time length. And then I come on and I'm like a whole Shayna. And I'm like, here you go. You can enjoy the whole thing. <laughs> it was very funny. Um, but I mean, I that's what I wanted to sing. It's my calling card, like you said. So I love it. So back to Santa Fe, um, you were part of this world premiere and you were technically an apprentice. Yeah. Uh, but can you tell us a story of how apprenticeship became having the leading role? <laughs> it's so weird to me still. I can't believe that that experience happened. Um, yeah, I, David Lomeli talked to me one night um, about how I was feeling about the role. And I said, you know, I she's really fun to sing. And for me, the way I prepared the role was I'm preparing it like I'm making Lucia thing. It, you know, it was a world premiere, right? So I had my own way of telling the story. Um, and if I ever got the opportunity to walk into a rehearsal or anything like that, I was ready to go. And all of a sudden it became a reality that I was doing the entire run. Uh, and I am eternally grateful for Santa Fe and uh, Mark and um, John for trusting me enough to put me in that position because to take someone who's 28 years old and in the apprentice program and just place her right into a cast that's like incredible. I just, you know, I got to work with my idols, which was crazy. Um, and to trust me to be able to walk into that role was such a huge honor for me. So yeah, it was weird, but I'm so grateful. So were you going to all the rehearsals or were you, did you also like you had some other apprenticeship responsibilities? So there were some days yeah. where they were like blocking Susanna Phillips and you missed it and you had to like, oh gosh, I got to learn what that staging was, you know? Thankfully, I um, I went to all the rehearsals, even though I might have not necessarily been called to them. If I was available, I was sitting in a seat uh, watching rehearsals because I wanted to be there. I don't know. I'm the weird person that just enjoys being in rehearsal and watching that. And um, also, as an apprentice at someplace like Santa Fe Opera, you're watching the people that are amazing at their jobs, right? And so you learn so much just by sitting in a chair watching all of these people do their work. And so I felt so compelled to go to every rehearsal that I can, even if I wasn't called, because I got to watch these amazing artists every day. Um, so yeah, I, I wasn't necessarily called, but I was in a lot of rehearsals. <laughs> so this, I mean, it's safe to say that this is like a big star turn for your career. I mean, you replaced yeah. Susanna Phillips in a world premiere by a composer who hadn't written an opera in what 30 years so everybody came to hear this thing yeah. um i know so many journalists that were there and also like um opera administrators and you know i'm sure agents and whatnot that were just mm -hmm. there and also it felt like the beginning of post-covid opera in the u.s so there were so many things that were like conspiring to make this particular you know event one of the events of the calendar, like not just yeah. at Santa Fe, but like in America, you know? Agreed, yeah. Um, and I don't mean to like make you, you know, freak out about it, but like, how do you feel about that? Like just... <laughs> <laughs> I know, it's so weird to think about. Um, 
It was very odd because I thought once I was assigned to doing the run, I thought that I would be freaking out. And I granted the night that I found out I was all over the place, couldn't sleep. I was tossing and turning the whole night and I was going over my score being like, am I ready for this? Um, But I wasn't nervous at all for the entire run, not even opening night. I felt like it was in a weird way, destiny for me to do it. Um, And I just felt like I was very ready for it and ready for people to hear me and something like that. Um, It was just a great opportunity and I'm, eternally grateful because and a lot it, of it clearly led it clearly led to other opportunities because just uh earlier this uh fall you were uh invited to be represented by icm img img oh what is icm that's like an old agency <laughs> from like before you were born yeah <laughs> it's okay um yeah i i was um and now i am on the roster from img which is mind-blowing to me um but I think, yeah, part part of the reason why I was added to that roster was because they heard me out in Santa Fe. Yeah, doing the like most ridiculous, difficult music. That <laughs> I mean, can you describe what it's like to sing that music and like what other things that you sing? I know you sing Fruling's Fire, um, this one of my favorite Strauss songs. I feel like I love the, that the, the last thirty seconds of Fruling's Fire is basically the role of Lucy, but just the whole role is like that. <laughs> yes. Oh my God. I never even thought about it that way, but it's true. Yeah. Um, I don't know. It was, I mean, it was a very demanding role. I will say that the Tessitura goes from like a high C to there's a low G at the end of the opera. Um, so it's the Tessitura and the range of it is crazy. Um, and you're on stage for a lot of the opera. Um, but it wasn't too difficult for me. I, I'm thankful for that. I feel like I was in really great vocal health and, uh, to be able to do it. And I was working with my teacher so much before going out to Santa Fe um, that I just felt like I was ready for it. So gratefully and thankfully, I was not too tired from the role. Um, and they were really great about uh, releasing me from some apprentice things mm-hmm. to where I wasn't uh, having... yeah. Yeah, because yeah, the Santa Fe Apprentice Program can be fatiguing only because you're involved in so much, right? Mm-hmm. We're so lucky for be, being able to do that. But it is a really long summer with a lot of things going on at the same time. Um, and so if your voice isn't really in shape, it's really hard to get through the summer. But like I said, I was working with my teacher a lot before I went out to Santa Fe. So I felt really comfortable. Um, yeah. But it is a demanding role. <laughs> so I mean, I'll just say we'll we'll get off this topic in a second. But there are really difficult roles like Aida and like Norma and even like Lucia, where there's a legacy of people who have performed these roles, and then you eventually like maybe find when the higher up you go in your career, you begin to, you know, able, you're able to coach with people who have sung it and who can <laughs> tell you like these are the pitfalls, like you've got to pace yourself, you know, whatever, giving you that type of advice from experience, but. When you're creating a role, how can your teachers help you? How can your coaches help you? That was the thing. Um, Like I mentioned before, when I was working on Lucy, I treated it as if I was doing her. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't treating it as the cover, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Because sometimes you can get in the mindset of like, oh, I'll never go on as a cover. I'll just take it easy with the role. No, I worked my 
butt off on that role. And I, um, I really made sure that I was singing it through all the time, um, just to pace myself and to see what it felt like. Cause there were, I don't even remember, but there were at least five high C's in that, uh, role, which for me, I don't go up to a high C all the time in roles, right? My like money note most of the time is a B flat. Very happy with that. <laughs> I think great too. Um, but I wasn't used to singing roles with that many high C's in it. So I had to really work on it and pace myself while I was practicing. Um, but my voice teacher, she helped by just uh, lining up my technique. That's the best way of putting it. Um, we just worked really hard on making sure that I was healthy vocally. And once that's all lined up, it's easy to just sing and pace yourself. And do you feel like, I know that there's a lot of people who haven't heard this yet and probably won't hear it until it goes on the radio broadcast series, which I think might happen next summer. Mm -hmm. uh, but so, you know, we could be talking about this. People are like, yeah, whatever. It was a hard role. But like, when they really hear this thing, like, oh, my God, that was really hard. Like, do you, <laughs> do you feel stronger for having done it? Or do you feel like, okay, well, I probably won't do that again? I mean, of course I feel stronger now that I've done it. Mm -hmm. um, it taught me so much about as a young, I mean, yeah, it just taught me so much. Um, being a young singer, you don't always know if you can do something like that. Mm -hmm. That was my first new piece. So I was really nervous for it, which I think led to me practicing it so much. Mm -hmm. um, but it made me stronger in the way that I held myself on stage and the way I acted. I mean, I was working with people like Jared Ott and David Portillo and Anthony Roth Constanza, right? Like crazy who are like huge stage animals, right? All of them are, the entire cast was. So I had to level up this summer um, to make sure that I fit in the cast and I didn't just look like a weird person walking on stage and not confident, you know what I mean? Like. <laughs> You there's always there can be that one person that just like sticks out like a sore thumb if they're not lined up with the rest of the cast. And so yeah. I felt like I learned so much about my stagecraft with that cast. And like I said, learning from uh, the rehearsal process as well, like watching somebody like Kevin Burdett, who's insane on the stage, he will change everything every rehearsal or every show. And you're just like, how do you think of these things on the spot? I don't get it. Um, he's just incredible. I mean, the whole cast was, so I feel really lucky. Well, you come from what you're talking to me right now from Sheboygan and, uh, you know, you're a native of Wisconsin. You did this university of Wisconsin, Milwaukee and mm. Chicago at the Ryan opera center has had a couple of people come from your neck of the woods a uh, friend of the show, Emily Pogoreltz, who just was a finalist in Operalia and is already, you know, on the roster. I forget. Uh, is, is she in Vienna or is she? Uh, Ooh, uh, it's, it's, Irish, uh, I believe. Irish, oh, yeah, by, Munich. Yeah. Okay. So she's uh, in the, she has a fast contract at Munich. Mm -hmm. And then we just had uh, Lauren Decker just a few years mm -hmm. ago, who is a contralto. And, mm -hmm. you know, some people say, oh, I'm a contralto. It's like, sure you are. I was like, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> she, a, a contralto. She yeah, is. She, yeah. And she has like a honking big voice. And mm -hmm. and it's beautiful, too. It's not just like loud for loud sake. Like she really has a gorgeous tone. And then I come to learn that the three of you were <laughs> in this little 
I don't know what you call it, like troop, <laughs> opera, <laughs> yeah, guess, yeah, yeah, like op- opera hobbyist troop. <laughs> <laughs> yes, oh my gosh, yes. Where you guys yeah. just did, you just put on scenes and stuff, um, and it was mm-hmm. called Calliope, and it doesn't exist anymore is my understanding, right? Yeah, it doesn't, because okay. all of us kind of filtered okay. away and went uh, on with our lives, yeah. yeah. Um, well, tell I me about know. Wisconsin- <laughs> And like what the scene is like over there and like why maybe it's like producing these good voices. Is it the cheese, you know, or is it, is it actually being a part of Calliope or is there somebody there who really knows voices and knows how to develop voices? Yeah, I think, um, so Lauren and I both study with Connie Haas. I don't know if Emily ever did, um, but Emily went to school, like she grew up in Milwaukee. Lauren and I didn't, we just went to school there. Um, but I think Connie Haas being in Milwaukee is such a treasure that most people don't know about. Um, she really, for me, at least my path coming back from my master's, I wasn't in great vocal health and she kind of built me from the ground up again. And now I'm coming back even stronger and really understanding my voice. So I'm really thankful for that. And I think she is a huge part of why there are so many good singers in the Milwaukee area. Um, and Calliope was just this, <laughs> sorry, I'm giggling just because like of the amount of fun times we had in that group and thinking back on that is just awesome. Um, it was just this little group where our, I guess, leader, Devere Burnett, who is now a manager with IMG, he is my manager and I'm so thankful for it. Um, he felt like we weren't getting enough opportunity uh, as students And um, not saying that UWM did a bad job. It's just, you know, like most colleges, the arts are underfunded. And so there wasn't a lot of opportunity to put on operas, big opera scenes, things like that. So he kind of just compiled a bunch of scenes for us. And um, Lauren and I actually, I'm trying to think, the first thing that we did together was Belle Nuit. And... Mm. um, like that was my first opera thing ever was with Lauren Decker. So uh, to think about that is just wild and awesome because we, our paths are continuously crossing now. And um, Calliope was just very special, very, very special for us. And it taught us so much about acting and knowing our text and learning about different operas. I mean, I learned so much about opera from that group just because Devere is this wild guy who has so much information shoved into his brain. I don't get it. Um, But he picks out things that are so true to our voices or like maybe a challenge. He was the first person that gave me um, Jewel Song from Faust or Faust, sorry. Um, And uh, he was the one that brought that aria into my life. And that's the aria that I kind of competed with all that year and I won a lot of things and I got into finals for a lot of things, including the Met auditions. And I owe so much to him in that group because I wouldn't have learned about my voice or like where a good uh, projection was of like, how far can I be pushed with my voice? You know, the challenge kind of things. Um, So yeah, Calliope is just insane and I'm so grateful for it. And we have a weird group of people that came out of it, like weirdly good singers. so it's just it's funny i mean we talk about it all the time we're like how did this happen to us like what okay this is great (laughs) well it just goes to show that you know there are plenty of like storefront companies especially in chicago 
where it's somebody's passion project. Yeah. But, uh, just because it's not like a well-funded, you know, underwritten, big stage, you know, detailed costume type of, you know, affair, there are still experiences to be had. Absolutely. And you never, you never know who you're working with. So always be kind and be a good colleague. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh yes. Oh yes. I mean, yeah, the, uh, most of our performances for Calliope were in churches. You know, it was that kind of thing where we might made opportunity for ourselves, mm -hmm. um, because we weren't given a lot, um, which like I said, is not necessarily the university's fault. It's more of just, there weren't a lot of opportunities to be given. So we made them ourselves. So I want to pick up on something you hinted at, uh, that, after your master's degree, you decided you needed to go back home and rework your technique. And I mean, I don't know you that well, but I just know you as this technical singer, like who has this ability to do very technically dif difficult things. So mm -hmm. the fact that you had to work on it, I mean, it seems like you're a natural to me. The <laughs> fact that you had to rework your technique is a little bit surprising to me. But I'd love to hear if you were willing to tell us a little bit about that experience and that journey of like, you know, starting over. Yeah. I mean, you hear it all the time, I guess, from the professionals, the higher end professionals, um, when they do master classes or Q&As with young artists like myself. Um, they always talk about that every path is different. And after the experiences that I went through, I fully believe in that. Um, you know, I felt like post-masters that I was a failure for not being in a big young artist program and I wasn't working in voice and everything like that. And I had my team of people backing me up like Devere and Connie, my voice teacher and other uh, people in the profession that they told me it was okay and I believed them and I trusted them. And I just worked really hard with Connie on finding the pieces that I needed to work on for my technique. I mean, it's not that I had to rebuild everything, right? Because that would be crazy. That would be so much time. And I don't think I would have made such a quick comeback if I would have had to redo everything. Um, but there were just some parts of my technique that I was really struggling with. And I think it was partially because I was in an environment like Juilliard where it's very exposed. You're exposed to a lot of like um, the big professional things that you want and strive for, but you put so much pressure on yourself that sometimes it doesn't do you good. Uh, and so Devere and I had a talk one night and he was like, I just don't think it's healthy for you to be in New York anymore. And I moved back home and I'm so grateful I did because I think I needed to discover a lot about myself as well, not just vocally, but just as a person, which, you know, as singers counts for a lot because our voice is our body. Right. And so my mindset was so toxic in New York at the time that I was just struggling with so much vocally. Um, so, yeah, I went back home and I stayed there. I mean, I'm still here, but uh, I came back for just a couple of years and really worked hard. And now things are looking up, <laughs> thankfully. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, I'm like ex experiences like that can really end people's journey. I've, I've heard yeah. people going going to, you know, let's just say New York, uh, and then not having a good experience and then just being, uh, just feeling defeated by it and huh. then, and then just giving up altogether, you know? 
Oh yeah. I have a lot of, um, friends of mine actually that I didn't necessarily meet at Juilliard, but, um, that are no longer doing voice. They're still involved somehow in the arts. They just didn't want to go the vocal path. Um, but for me, I don't think I could see myself doing anything else. I, I mean, I have like a little fun story is that when I came home from preschool one day with my parents, uh, I was talking to them and I was like, I want to be a music teacher. I was so hard on being a music teacher, even from a young age. Um, and I'm not a teacher, but I went into music. And I think that that says something that in preschool, I was like, no, music is going to be my life. And it has been since that day. <laughs> um, whether it be like I was a bassoonist for 10 years before I was a singer. Um, you know, it's things like that. I've always had music involved in my life in some way. Um, so I don't think I was ever going to quit. I definitely gave myself a good break, uh, for a couple of months, uh, post-grad school, but I, there was no way I was quitting. It was just a matter of helping my mind realize that that's what I wanted. And I had to work really hard for it instead of being so defeated. So I'm sensing a little bit, and tell me if I'm wrong, uh, but that maybe your voice, people expect you, your voice to be able to do certain things because you do have, you know, metal in your sound. I think when, once people hear the metal, they're like, ah, now mm -hmm. we can like, we have a, we have a big voice, you know, and then they want to start doing things with it and like, you know, pushing you towards repertoire that you may and may not be ready for. And people mm -hmm. who are your age are rarely ready to sing that repertoire but then you become your age and you're 28 where there are expectations where okay you're 28 now you should have gotten this apprenticeship you should have gotten this competition by now etc yeah. so mm -hmm. if you could just talk about like the big voice how it's a blessing and a curse <laughs> yeah well and i think um nowadays it's so funny that you mentioned this because i was just talking to a good friend of mine the other day about it nowadays i feel like there are so many aspects of the voice that get paired with big voice like color or like mm. your body size is also a thing that tech or that is mentioned a lot and like being like oh you're a big girl you should have a big voice right that's not always how it goes it's what's in here and that's what like makes the sound and that's what determines what kind of voice you are um but yeah i got uh when i was in my younger 20s or mid 20s I got into trouble because a lot of people thought that I should be singing bigger rep because of my color and my sound. And I trusted them as, you know, most young singers get caught up in that kind of thing. They trust the people that they're working with. And um, I don't think that every idea was bad. I think I just took it too far and I didn't know how to get myself out of it. I just thought, you know, my, like I said, my brain was not in the right mindset. And I just thought, oh, I got to make people happy right? It was all about the people pleasing that um, they were like them thinking that I had to sing bigger rep. I had to sing bigger rep instead of working on my technique, working on Mozart, that kind of, you know, like the normal standard vocal things to work on. I wasn't doing, I was just pushing myself into bigger rep and got into a lot of trouble. <laughs> um, but now I feel like I trust my voice more so I know when I'm ready for something and I have someone like Devere who's telling me things and he's like no it's time it's time to go that way and and time to put this on your uh rep list you know um but I think it comes with age that you trust your voice and um 
you have to find your team of people that you trust too. I have a team of people that I will never stray away from because I, they have just taught me so much. And I, the, I mean, <laughs> I'm getting rewarded for it in a way, you know what I mean? Like I'm getting Ryan center. I'm getting the big thing at Santa Fe. I'm getting the Dallas opera competition, things like that are coming my way because I'm singing correctly. And it's because I'm trusting my team to lead me. So, hmm. yeah. I mean, it, it's not just about singing, like what are the things that you said make me think of, and like the people pleasing and about like learning yeah. to know oneself before one can really grow into the person we're supposed to be. But, mm -hmm. you know, like people see these things inside of us and they assume that we're ready, you know, for this next thing when, no, you just discovered that in me. I haven't discovered it for myself yet. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh. And because I didn't know myself when I was in my mid twenties and younger than that, I like just trusted everyone. You know, it's like the saying too many cooks in the kitchen. And I definitely yeah. had too many cooks in the kitchen and I was trusting all of them and battling within myself of the people pleasing thing. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But really, I think that that's just a learning experience that every singer has to go through. Um, there's very few singers that I know that have gotten lucky without having to deal with that. Um, most singers eventually have to face that challenge of who am I going to trust myself, my team, that kind of thing, the people pleasing thing. I mean, that's still in my brain, right? Always. Because we want to make the art for people. We are doing mm -hmm. our jobs for people. It's not a selfish thing. Yeah. So it's a people pleasing thing, but it's on a different level, like wave, wave um, length, you know, it's not people pleasing. Well, I have to it, make my voice to please you. It can be very confusing for um, singers who, you know, enter into opera, not knowing a lot about the repertoire. Mm -hmm. And you, there are all these people who are like our experts and who know so much. And you think that just because they know about repertoire that they know about voices they really know about mm -hmm. voices and it's very seductive to hear people say oh my god you'll make a great Electra or whatever yeah. <laughs> oh my god oh my gosh yes just, just because they can imagine it doesn't mean that your voice can actually <laughs> yeah absolutely and especially with like um some some things that I got caught up with was people were giving me rep They'd be like, oh, you'll be great at this one day. And then I would start looking at it. And then I'm like, oh, it's time to put it in right now. Instead yeah. of working on it for a very long time or a good amount of time and then bringing it out when it's finally ready. Which that's just, like I said, a lesson you have to learn sometimes. And I'm grateful that it happened early in my career. Yeah. So now I'm coming back and I'm just like, I feel like I'm so honest with myself and my team is honest with me. And I'm you know, I'm pacing myself correctly and I don't feel bad about what I'm singing right now or what I may be singing soon. It's just something I learned really early and I'm so grateful for it. Well, that's a great way to close. One of the things that I heard you sing um, at the Ryan Opera Center um, finals was the conclusion of Anna Bolena. Um, you sing the whole damn thing. <laughs> it's waiting for you to bring out a chorus. <laughs> Oh yes. Um, but let's just let the audience. <laughs> oh my gosh! I wish I would. Love that. How long have you been have you been working on this aria? Um, I oh man, how long have I been working on it? I actually, random. This is like another little tidbit. I sang it for the first time for Renata Scotto oh in a gosh. coaching setting. I know. I was crazy. I don't know why I did it. I was. I had never worked on it before besides like my own 
practice time. Um, but I had never brought it into coaching before. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to sing a bel canto piece for the queen, for a queen of bel canto. Like, why not? And you know what? I'm so glad I did because it was such a cool experience, uh, experience with her. Um, so I think that was like, uh, 2017, I want to mm-hmm. say. Um, but I really haven't been working on it consistently until probably after, uh, my grad school. Well, Maybe. I don't know. I, I don't want to make this about me, but I heard a master class with Renata Scotto mm-hmm. and, uh, she gave this advice. I wonder if she gave it to you too. Uh, when there are no words and when it's like a cadenza moment, mm-hmm. it's about, it's about you. But mm-hmm. as soon as you get back to words, it's about the character. Mm-hmm. Did she say something like that to you? Oh yeah. We talked about cadenza. Cause at the time when I sang it for her, um, I did not have the cadenza written in like I have now that I've mm-hmm. been doing forever. Um, and she gave me some of my ideas because she was like, no, 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 it has to be about you. <laughs> like, this is your time to shine, right? Like, it's not about the character. It's about your voice because it's yeah. a cadenza. It's bare. Yeah. That's yeah. the most intimate part of Bel Canto is when you're singing without anything underneath you. It's just you. Yeah. Um, and it's about the emotion behind your voice, too. You know, there's still a little bit of the character, but that's when you really get to shine is in those moments. Yeah, oh, I love it. OK, well. Katie Henry, thank you so much. And um, we're going to go out with a little bit of uh, Cursed cursed Couple. <laughs> yes, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> or fail here's monday evening quarterback hashtag opera on the ball listeners will remember that this is the opera box score uh fantasy football league that we are part of the opera philadelphia tobias wright who he manages the account he sends me an update every week this is what he said quote several weeks of terrible and i do mean terrible luck have helped launch the opera box score team into the basement of the opera philly fantasy football league Management of the squad could improve, to be certain, although I am tied for second in my other league, and I feel like I follow the same guidelines and strategies here. This week, we take on the formidable foe of Lawrence Brownlee. As of this writing, we are projected favorite with a predicted score of 117 to 112. 
Larry's in third place in the overall standings while we are in 11th. I have a really good feeling about this matchup, and I cannot wait to beat you, Larry Brownlee, and tweet about it. So watch out, sir. <laughs> You're such a liar. You don't, even, you don't even know what a tweet is. <laughs> it's true. I, I don't, <laughs> but I'm going to make someone else do it. <laughs> Monday Such evening quarterback enemy of the show, Tobias Wright. <laughs> is back. The Barry Kosky flute. Barry Kosky, of course, the intendant of the Komischer Oper. This production started the Komischer Oper in 2012. And this production has traveled to Perth, Australia, Macau, Houston, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, San Francisco. And we finally got it in Chicago what a full nine years after a decade it took a hot second feels longer (laughs) so i mean what you have read about it is true good and bad um i think that for first-time audiences to the opera and first-time audiences to the magic flute it actually is a great on-ramp uh to going to the opera it's great for people with attention deficit disorder because it is constantly engaging and it's always giving you something new to look at um but it does a disservice to mozart uh, it removes <laughs> and to chickenator for that matter it removes the the dialogue and as a result you lose character development especially for papagena the character of the sprecher is completely eliminated um Papageno, uh, really, it it's, depends on the quality of the singer to make that role come to life in this production. And everybody else becomes really anonymous. Almost to the point where you see the costumes of the like chorus. On, on purpose. Yeah. They're really yeah, supposed yeah. to be. The costumes of the female chorus are the exact same costume as Pamina. And the costume for the male chorus are the exact same costume for Tamino. And the costumes for like the... Uh, monastery, uh, what do we call them? The, the Freemasons mm-hmm. are the exact same costume yeah. as um, Zarastro. Yeah. So everybody becomes anonymous in this production. We were so lucky to have Ying Fang uh, in the Lyric Opera of Chicago's production. She was great. Just absolutely she was the highlight. Yeah. yeah. She made something of this um, because of the quality of her singing and just the strength of her stagecraft. Uh, she could have easily have vanished into this production the way the Queen of the Night did, who basically was erased from this show. I mean, luckily our singer that we had here, I can't remember her name, uh, she had great high notes. So when she was above the staff, you finally paid attention to her. But uh, it was only the notes above the staff where she <laughs> drew attention <Yeah>. to herself. Because <laughs> she's basically taped to the wall. Yeah. And so that a giant um, holographic spider can be projected on top <laughs> of her, and really the only thing of her that you can to- that you can see at all is her face. The rest yeah. of it is just like an anonymous white smock. Uh, and the there are a lot of really interesting allusions to like early cinema. If you if you know it, yeah, like I mean, exactly. haircut is looks just like Louise Brooks. You got that kind of flapper bob going on. Monostratos is done up in kind of like an F.W. Murnau. He's, um, he's straight up Nosferatu. Fritz There's Lung, the, the eyes yeah. from Metropolis, you know. Which if you're really... a silent film fan like me, yeah. it's kind of astounding how much it was made for me and not for Oliver specifically. <laughs> <laughs> I and actually by, quite enjoyed it. And by leaning on that kind of vocabulary, it can kind of sidestep some of the iffy 
parts and by getting yeah. rid of the dialogue it can sidestep some of the iffiest parts of uh, magic flute that have aged not particularly well particularly anytime they talk about anyone's skin color um yes. but there but there are also like lots and lots of parts of magic flute that talk about the differences between men and women and men being righteous and men being just and women being like silly liars um and it was <laughs> really interesting that instead that that their approach to that kind of a question was to hang a lantern on it and really kind of almost play up that kind of contradiction between um, what uh, uh, kind of values we have in our society today about gender equity and like what this opera talks about them. Uh, and I think that that kind of goes to like magic flute exists in this weird kind of in-between space between like a morality philosophical play and a fairy right. tale. Uh, yeah. And you can go like one of two ways. Uh, and this production, this production, instead of going one of two ways, like most of them do, like actually kind of built up both ends of the extremes. And I thought that the fairy tale aspects of it worked a lot better than the morality play stuff. I, I would agree. I, I would say, though, I am I am one of those. Uh, I mean, I love me some Euro trash. You know what I mean? I'm one of I those do. people, uh, and I I think that you want this... grin of lab rats. <laughs> <laughs> I really I, I love that production. Anyway, so oh, I think that there's uh, I think that there's something really exciting about Magic Flute specifically because we also have to consider like the place Magic Flute has within the context of like who is seeing the opera, right? Because uh, Magic Flute was my first opera as a child. The same here, Magic Flute actually. is the Oh, really? Great. We're, yeah. we're, we're brothers. Uh, uh, this is this is one of the few operas where you will get a distinctly different audience than you would get in a a, a, a normal opera. You know what I mean? You, you have people who have never been there before, people whose first experience, they need something to wow them, right? They're there to hear the Queen of the Night aria. I mean, that's I was literally, say, like we heard what we hear in the lobby. He's like, oh, I can't hear yeah, even, <laughs> even people that you wouldn't necessarily call like opera connoisseurs, they there are known quantities of the magic flute that people know what they're getting when they go to see it. I mean, exactly. Dais, it was on ABC Saturday morning cartoons as we all experienced earlier this year. <laughs> and uh, really, what you need is something to hold the new audience's attention until the Queen of the Night aria happens. <laughs> and and this really delivers on that. Like it, from a technical standpoint, for 2012 extraordinary the the amount of cues i think it's like 753 cues which i calculated out is like an average of uh of uh i believe just under one every 15 seconds for the entire run that tracks with my show, experience of which is you know yeah. <laughs> which is it's a lot happening but there's no moment where you're like you're like you know get a little bit too you know if you're new to the opera and I think that's where it probably succeeds the most. Well, At the same time, that's the criticism of it too. Is that like you get fatigue from all the imagery, and the, the music never is allowed to just be the music and let people be in the moment of the music because you're I always think, looking for the next cue, you know. And I do think that there are a couple parts where it really does kind of like take flight, uh, right? Pun unintended, because one of those is when Pamina uh, does not commit suicide but instead grows butterfly wings. I thought that part was really an evocative use of it also like the escape scene when pamina and uh papageno are running and they do kind of video game jumps over the different over the rooftops <laughs> yeah. um the parts where it actually felt like the singers on stage as real people ish were interacting with the projections were the parts that i really truly liked a lot yeah um the ser the serpent stuff was great 
Um, but a lot of the in-between interstitials like just didn't have the same kind of effect. And so it, as an evening, is not as successful as the most successful parts of it. And when the singers, uh, just to dovetail on that, when the singers were constrained is when I was uncomfortable. When the singers were allowed to do what they do is when I enjoyed it the most. Look, ultimately for me, and I haven't seen the production, but I can tell you this. Magic Flute, it was written as a zingspiel. It was a piece for the people with the dialogue and with songs. Ultimately, my question for the a production of Magic Flute is, can I sit here and eat a bratwurst while I'm watching this and not be out of place? Can I be at home? That is what makes me comfortable watching this piece, which is down and dirty and rough and rugged. And you know the people up in Milwaukee who always eat bratwurst and don't do anything else, you know that they were eating bratwurst. Stop alienating Wisconsin. (laughs) They already hate us because we're from Chicago. But they do like the two-minute drill. That's right, Matt. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in America's Dairyland this week. (laughs) (laughs) The Santa Fe Opera has announced its ambitious 2022 season with 38 performances and five new productions, including the world premiere of M. Butterfly by friend of the show Huang Ro and David Henry Huang. The company premiere of Tristan und Isolde and Chestnuts such as Carmen, Barbara Seville, and a new production of Falstaff by David McVicker. That's Sir David McVicker to you. The Glyndebourne Festival is launching a new streaming service called Glyndebourne Encore with access to past productions and all new productions. Artistic director Stephen Langridge said, Last summer's digital festival highlighted the huge appetite for Glyndebourne opera all around the world. He's talking about more than 800,000 views that the Bourne has had over the course of the pandemic. New service launches December 1st. Latvian mezzo-soprano Elena Garancha has some strong words on the upcoming Vienna Opera Ball. Quote, Opera Ball, yes, but only for vaccinated people. The people who have been vaccinated should be rewarded. The artists, too. I am vaccinated and I have not grown horns or wings from the vaccination. Anyone who does not want to live in society and does not want to accept certain norms is then excluded. Amen, sister. Washington National Opera has inaugurated a Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg Studio and Music Library in Tacoma Park, featuring the late Justice's piano and a treasure trove of RBG memorabilia. Ruth Bader Ginsburg was one of the greatest advocates for our art form, said Artistic Director Francesca Zambello. She also made all of us better artists through her high principles and inspiring way of living. The Bayerische Staatsoper has canceled all performances until November 12th at the earliest due to a COVID-19 case in the house. Don't make us bring back Die Roten Karten. Swedish mezzo-soprano Anne Hallenberg and baritone John Lundgren have been appointed royal court singers by His Majesty King of Sweden Karl XVI Gustav. Past appointees have included Nina Stemme, Peter Matei, and Maya Person. The court jester position hasn't been announced yet, but my money's on Western. <laughs> A series in The Guardian invites readers to answer other readers' questions on subjects ranging from trivial flights of fancy to profound scientific and philosophical concepts. So count Matt out. This week's query, why don't opera singers deafen each other? They're singing loud enough to be heard in the back row, yet they're right in each other's ears. Well, Mr. London Guardian, we've got an answer or two. 
In trade news, English mezzo-soprano Dame Sarah Connolly will become the new president of British Youth Opera, saying on Twitter she was proud to become a part of the, quote, futures of our wonderful young singers. Gotta work on that accent. <laughs> Cape Town Opera has announced the appointment of soprano and director Magdalena Minard to the position of artistic director. She'll take up the new job on January 1st. Exit stage right, Austrian soprano Dori Hanak has died at age 82. Hanak sung as a member of the Oper Graz Ensemble for over three decades, as well as the Salzburg Festival, Vienna State Opera, Grand Teatro del Liceo, La Monet, and taught at the American Institute of Musical Studies, also known as Ames in Graz. French dramatic tenor Gilbert P has died at age 87. His second place finish at the Cannes Concours de Chant launched him into an international career in the most difficult tenor repertoire, which he performed all over the world. Australian baritone Malcolm Donnelly has died at the age of 78. Donnelly was a member of English National Opera and performed frequently at the company, as well as at Opera Australia. Mario Levista Camacho, one of Mexico's leading composers, has died at the age of 78 as well. Camacho was known for his opera, Aura. And on this day, November 8th, in 1799, it was the first performance of Pietro Alessandro Guglielmi's La Villanella in Gentilita in Naples. Guglielmi wrote 83 operas in total, and now you know the name of one of them. In 1890, <laughs> it was the first performance of Charles Lecoq's Operetta L'Egyptien in Paris. In 1909, the Boston Opera House gave its first performance, in this case, La Gioconda. In 1921, it was the birth of American-based Jerome Hines, a born-again Christian and member of the Salvation Army. Hines also composed an opera on the life of Jesus called I Am the Way, in which he sang the role of Jesus. In 1927, it was the birth of Italian-based Ivo Binko and Norwegian soprano Ingrid Bjorner. And happy birthday to English soprano Elizabeth Gale, born this day in 1948. And that's your two-minute drill. Just a little sample of that beautiful opera, I Am The Way, with Jerome Hines singing the Lord's Prayer. He's playing the titular I. <laughs> <laughs> if, you know, if you know Jerome Hines' name, it's probably from that book that he put together, Great Singers yeah. on Great Singing, yeah. where he Great interviewed I loved it. Yeah. every singer yeah. under the sun. And I have read it multiple times. It's so good. November 8th, the day when nothing happened in opera. <laughs> I mean, you would. I mean, Pietro Alessandro Guglielmi would have something to say about that. So, I mean, it was only 80. one of eighty-three. So, <laughs> I mean, that's like double Handel's output, probably. Right? That's that's really crazy. Oh my god! Even Handel could handle writing that many operas. Oh god! Alina I'm sorry, Elena that was the worst one I've ever made. <laughs> that's not even true. Alina throwing down at the Viennese Opera Ball. I love this story. First of all, I love Alina Garantia in general. I mean, I think like 
the biggest crime was when uh, the Met did the uh, the Rosen Cavalier with Renee Fleming, and Renee, Renee Fleming was doing her last role, uh, last role, you know, last turn at that role, and so was Alina Garancha, and everyone was like cheering for yeah. Renee. I'm like, Alina Garancha is right there. She is a hero. She, um, I, I, I just hope that Anna Trepko can recover from uh, Alina's scathing words. Um, That's because... speculation. We don't know whether or not she's vaccinated. <laughs> it's just speculation based on everything she said during this. Yes, show, right? everything she said and done, you know. But I think it's an absolutely correct statement. I think that it's great to. It, it's just nice to see uh, an opera singer taking a very public, very hard stance pro-vaccination because i feel like certain stars and the fact that we have to take a stance on vaccination is already exactly exactly crazy they should just arm wrestle well if one of them has wings and horns that wouldn't be a very fair fight i I don't know if that's a a benefit all right george so let's let's really get to the bottom as we promised at the top of the show why aren't people getting deaf on opera stage all right, it's an old, old trick, and I, I learned this in grad school. So you've got mm. your duet between your, mm. your Rodolfo and your Mimi, and, or you know, pick your pick your pairing, uh, and so one. I wish I had another body here to show you. Essentially, bring, bring that cat let's, back. Let's, <laughs> don't you dare. Let's say the tenor is singing. All the tenor has to do is cover the soprano's ears with his hands, as if. He is holding her head lovingly <laughs> as if. Is that talking. how you direct your singers? No. <laughs> that no, people no, no. were learning like, at North And if Park. he does it right, he can cover her face so that you can only you, see the tenor. You can only see me. <laughs> um, but it's very, the oldest trick in the book. You just put your hands over that other, your scene partner's ears. I thought you were about to go into a long discussion of what cheating out means. I know. <laughs> I know. <That's> a... <laughs> It's part of the cheating out. Seriously, though, next time, uh, next time you're watching the pros on the Met and HD or, or what have you. Wow, that was them. not the answer I was expecting. But... <laughs> it's, man, it's so Just simple. cover each other's ears. That's all you gotta do. <laughs> it's easy. Well, they call him George Wildcard Cedarquist. <laughs> the man is a professional director. He knows these things. I would Look. say that at Santa Fe, they don't need to cover each other's ears because it's an outdoor venue and your sound just just doesn't has nowhere has nowhere to go you know dissipates yeah and that's part of the what i think is the real answer is that a lot of what makes you hear the singers in the auditoriums are these acoustical tricks like where there are formants really really high in the orchestral range it's called i'm sorry really really high hertz frequencies that is called the singer's formant because it's what helps Mm. you project over like the woodwinds and the brasses uh and that is what gives you cut and it is what like keeps you alive but also maybe singers are just going to go deaf. Who knows? But yeah. if you're ever in doubt, you can just wrap up your soprano and stick them at the top of the stage and project yeah. a holographic spider on them and you're good to go. But it's actually Even uh, brass instruments. Like, I mean, really, it's trumpets that are the dangerous instruments to be yes. around. Because yes. those I'll go like those perform at the frequency that is very dangerous for your ear if you're close you to say this to a trumpet player by the way so we know i knew power. you were the menace yeah. <laughs> i knew you were a trumpet player you've never so, told me but i knew it at my at the core of my soul fourth grade baby yep. we are just very happy this is like the santa fe episode bonus um that um the huang ro and uh henry david huang opera is finally gonna be part of the santa mm-hmm, fe season it mm-hmm. was it had to be jettisoned because of COVID and they didn't bring it back for the 2021 season, but it's coming. And we have two friends of the show, Justin Kim or Kangman, Justin Kim, 
and uh, Huang Ro, obviously, as part of that uh, creative yeah. team. So uh, can't wait for that. And uh, it's Super my understanding that Santa Fe is inviting Opera Box Score back next yeah. year. Well, you can so. enjoy a performance of Tristan and Isolde that apparently begins at 8 p.m. and will be done at <laughs> 4 in the morning. Oh, <laughs> uh, yes. Honestly, that's going to be an awesome production, though. Zach Winnicor directing that production. Amaro Wilson singing Isolde. That's super cool. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, Marianne Clement is directing the Carmen, I think, uh, Sir David McVicker with Falstaff, because what we all want to see is another Sir David McVicker production and Barbara of Seville. Uh, returning as well rgb not returning she's dead oh, but her gosh. spirit oh lives George. on yes okay look, there we go that, that's, for one we should have let you finish the, the sentence here's the thing about judaism and his death is like because there's no afterlife in judaism like it's okay just to say the person's dead it's not mm-hmm. it's not an insult yeah um, that's true so uh uh we did a we did a show honoring her legacy and her her ties to opera last year around the time of her passing and it we did talk a lot about her her close ties to Washington National Opera and and especially the uh, production of Daughter of the Regiment that she was in there and I believe yeah. that yeah. her costume from that production is part of the memorabilia. It is yes. Wander over to Tacoma Park and check it out, our DC listeners. It's on a very small mannequin. Maybe well, I wonder if the the uh, <laughs> piano is a player piano. With Why? Like little, you know, Why do you think that Ruth Bader Ginsburg did not have played the piano, George? That yeah, George. Very disrespectful. No, those things are mutually exclusive, Matt. You can play the piano or you can choose because I grew up in a household with a player piano. What? Oh! What is again. your life, did George? <laughs> did not have you pegged as a player piano player. <laughs> Trumpet, yes. Piano player. Uh, p- player piano, no. I think uh, I better wrap this show up before my <laughs> colleagues murder me in my bed (laughs) good call bad call on opera box score good call bad call it's how we wrap up every show and boy my colleagues can't wait to get off the air on this one (laughs) ashley missed the whole thing of course we're going to kick it off oliver camacho good call call. there's a brand new recording of an opera that is not canon but that i have multiple versions of at any rate which is uh, Mozart's Mitridate Re di Ponto, which has a ridiculously difficult tenor role and a ridiculously difficult soprano role. There's actually three sopranos in this opera and a counter They're all ridiculous. And, yeah. But uh, this recording, uh, led by Mark Minkowski and the Musician de Louvre, uh, stars the Barry tenor Michael Spires uh, as Mitridate, which is perfect because the role of Mitridate has this really difficult opening cavatina which goes like come scolio has like these big leaps like two octave leaps you know so it's perfect it was just made for michael spires it also is one of my favorite singers sabine de vieille in the role of uh i think ismene i forget all these women's names but julie fuchs is sifare and counter tenor paul antoine beno di gian is farnace but go for michael spires because he is everything right now Matt Cummings. I'll continue with the recording recommendations and talk about one that I've been listening to this week that's pretty fantastic, which is Janine DeBeek's new uh, recital disc, Mirrors, uh, which is Baroque arias, mostly by Handel, but not exclusively by Handel. There's some uh, ground in there. There's some ground. There's yeah. some uh, telemon, uh, mm-hmm. but she sounds fantastic, and her ornaments are so interesting and intriguing. You should really check this out. Weston Williams. 
Um, I like you, George. Uh, I'm stealing your good call. You saw Dune, didn't you? You No, you're going to steal my good call? Yeah, I'm stealing your good call, but don't worry. The Dune I saw was the David Lynch version from 1980-something uh, with, uh, with the very scary puppet that looks very much like very testicular, shall we say, and the editing that's really choppy. And I assume Isn't it was basically Sting the same in that? What? That's Isn't only murders Sting in the building. in that? Yeah, Sting is in that. And is he, he does naked have in that? Mostly naked. You okay. don't see everything, yeah. sadly. But um, for all you sting heads out there, the testicular puppet is that lot. how you got there? <laughs> <laughs> that was the weirdest thirty seconds of my life. Uh, my bad call is that the uh, Bears are losing Lynch. to the Steelers right now. It's fourteen zip at the half. Pittsburgh. That is it for this week's edition of America's Talk Radio Show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, you just search for Opera Box Score. Twitter and Instagram, at Opera Box Score. Please help us deepen that bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. You can email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Hey, look, drop us a line. Get some merch. OBS mm. beer coaster and an OBS lapel pen. You get that just for sharing your own hot take. Again, subscribe to the podcast on Stitcher. Just favorite the show, Apple Podcasts. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho. Our audio and video editor is Weston Williams. For our guest, Catherine Henry, and your co-host, Matt Cummings, I'm George Cedarquist asking you to continue the conversation about opera as you inspect your body for new appendages due to the COVID vaccine. We're back with an all-new show next week. Plus, you get more opera headlines, more hot takes, and more daylight savings. This service is not available in all areas. Join us! <laughs> <laughs>